more than a sermon. And by the grace of God, we're going to cover a lot of Scripture. Please, please keep your pens handy. Uh, Keep your outlines handy in case you want to make notes, take notes. Going to look at several different places in the Bible pertaining to this very important subject. Uh, Before we even dive into verse 1, if you would bow your heads with me, let's ask God for help this morning. Lord, we appreciate the help you've already given. Thank you for what we learned in our first hour. We ask you continue to meet with us now and speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to understand what this passage has to offer and what all these verses we're going to look at, Lord. Let it sink in and help us by the end of this to come to know you better. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 1, Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So you can see Paul says, please now give me your attention. I I beg you, don't be confused, stirred up, shaken, troubled about this topic of the coming of the Lord or our gathering together unto Him, which I believe is uh, one way of mentioning the rapture. He is going to talk to them about all the particulars they need to know so that they're not confused on this subject. But verse number 8, if you just skip down a little bit, Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. That has to do with that sharp sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. You read about in Revelation 19. It says, And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when Jesus comes, verse 8 is talking about destroying the Antichrist. Now, we cannot get to the triumph of Jesus destroying the Antichrist without the tribulation that the Antichrist brings with him. Before we can get to the millennial kingdom, Jesus being on the earth, ruling as king of kings, we are first going to have a false king of kings. The devil is the great imitator. So God, he sent his son, we call him Christ. The devil also has a son, and he is termed Antichrist. So Paul is going to take time and attention to teach the Thessalonians, actually to remind them that before we get to the triumph of Jesus coming back, we first have to deal with this Antichrist and this time of tribulation. So you can see in verse number 2 that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. They were getting confused about this. Neither by spirit. So maybe one of the congregation said, I have been inspired to think or believe these certain things about the coming of the Lord. Then he says, nor by word. Maybe they heard by rumor. Maybe they heard some other guy teaching a lesson on this. Maybe they read it on Facebook. Who knows? (laughs) Nor by letter as from us. Evidently, somebody wrote a letter or letters to the Thessalonians and signed Paul's name to it and said, you guys, one thing or the other, maybe you missed the rapture, or hey, the Lord has already come back. One of the false teachings that was being circulated in Paul's day, if you just turn the page, maybe one or two pages to the right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, a couple books to the right, 2 Timothy 2 verse 18. Here's one of the lies that was, that was being told. Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already 
and overthrow the faith of some. Now that's actually going to be very important. That is what Paul is trying to avoid in the Thessalonian congregation. He doesn't want them to lose faith in the resurrection, in the fact that Jesus is coming again, and that we're going to be gathered together unto him. So back in 2 Thessalonians 2, in verse 2, here's where the confusion was coming in. Nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let's talk about that last phrase for a moment. When we say something is at hand, usually the way we use that, it's just about to happen. It's not here yet, but it's just about to happen. Jesus said this on many occasions, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You wouldn't read that and think the kingdom of heaven has already been established. You would think it's just about to come. It can come at any moment. And if you understand the phrase in that way, then, then maybe I think we could say this, that somebody told the Thessalonians, Jesus is going to show up any minute and all of your troubles will be over. Because we learned in chapter 1, they were going through a lot of different persecutions and problems. And somebody might have said, Jesus is going to come, what, five minutes, five days from now, and all the problems will be over. Now, what's wrong with that? Why would that confuse them? Why would that cause them to be troubled or shaken in their minds? It seems like that's good news. Yeah? So what would be wrong with telling them that? Well, if you give somebody a false hope, you say, Jesus is going to show up in five minutes, and he doesn't. Then what happens? Then they start to say, well, Jesus failed. Jesus let me down. The prophecies of the Scripture have failed, and then you lose faith in Jesus and the Bible. And when you think of this with 2 Timothy, it can overthrow the faith of some to say that this has already happened or it's about to happen and then it doesn't. That can confuse people. Maybe Paul is trying to avoid that. This has actually happened a few times in history. I don't know how familiar you are with the origin story of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, but in, 18, in the early 1800s, a man named William Miller, he wrote a book on the second coming of Christ. And he had thought that he had discovered the timing of the second coming. And he told all of his followers between October the 21st, 1843, or October 21st, 1844. Somewhere in that year, Jesus is coming. They were excited. By the time 21 October, 1844 had passed, obviously Jesus had not come. Miller said, oops, <laughs> my bad. Let me, let me check my math. And he did, and he said, you know what? I think the problem is the calendar. So I was using this particular calendar. Let me switch over to this one. When he did, he said, all right, you know, recalculating. <laughs> and he came up with a new date. And he said, okay, April the 14th, April the 14th, 1844, that's it. Give me just a few extra days. That day came and went. Jesus didn't come. And the people said, okay, what's going on? He said, all right, hang on. Let's go back and take another look. So some of his followers helped him out and said, all right, we, let, we got the wrong day in mind. We thought it was this, but it's actually the Day of Atonement. So we need to move this out about six months or so. October the 22nd, 1844. That's the day, for sure. Eight, 22 October came and went. Jesus didn't come. And they termed, that day became known in their history as the Great Disappointment. And he had over 100,000 followers at this time. And many of them quit the movement and said, listen, 
You obviously don't know what you're talking about. And many of them not only quit his movement, but quit the faith altogether because they thought the Bible just cannot give us accurate information. Now, a few people did remain. They readjusted the teachings and came out with something a bit strange, and that gets off into another subject. But the SDA movement eventually came from all of those failed prophetical attempts. Now, after this, the Jehovah Witnesses, they actually kind of spring forth from William Miller's predictions. And if you know much about their history, they said that during the First World War, this is the end of the world. 1914, the world is going to end, Jesus will come back. Didn't happen. So they said, oh, oh, sorry, my bad, wrong calendar, 1915. Came and went, Jesus didn't do it. 1925, that's the day, we got it now. Came and went, no Jesus. Then they tried again, I think 1975 or something like that, it didn't pan out. They said, okay, we're done, no more predictions. It's kind of a dark spot on, on their history. But this discouraged hundreds of thousands of people that thought the Bible has an answer to this. So to say, listen, Jesus is going to show up right now, now, and then he doesn't, that's a dangerous thing. And maybe that's what Paul is addressing. By somebody saying the day of Christ is at hand, you cannot, you cannot tell us at an exact day or hour. So don't say it's right here, right now. There are other things that have to happen before Jesus can show up. That's what Paul's going to teach us in this passage. So before we can get to the day of Christ, we're going to see some other things. Now, there's another way that we can understand this phrase, the day of Christ is at hand. When you read that, those two words, at hand, there's one Greek word that is used when Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand, that's a different Greek word. This at hand is also translated as it's presently here. You see this in the book of Romans. It says things present nor things to come. When it says things present, it's this same word, at hand. So it could have been that some people were teaching, Jesus has already come. The resurrection has already passed, right? We saw that in Timothy. And we are now in the kingdom. Well, to teach Christians, the kingdom has come. Jesus has already come. He just did it spiritually. He's not here physically. He just did it spiritually. By the way, the Reformed movement still believes that. That's part of Catholic history as well. Many, many people believe that, that we are in the kingdom now. Well, if you're a Thessalonian and you're getting beat up every other day because you're a Christian, you are getting robbed. They're coming into your home, stealing your stuff. They are killing your family members, impaling them on poles, and lighting them on fire because Nero thinks it's funny to use Christians as a candle. And then somebody says, hey, the kingdom's come. Jesus is in charge now. Really? If Jesus is in charge, why am I still suffering? This doesn't make sense. Evidently, Jesus is angry at me if this is his kingdom. So if that's the problem, you can also see why Paul would say, don't be shaken or troubled, guys. The day of Christ has not come yet. Now, either way you understand the phrase at hand, Paul's point still remains. It, it doesn't matter how you see that. The point is, before we get to triumph, we have to deal with tribulation. Before the world will receive Jesus Christ, it first has to deal with the Antichrist. And that's verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Let's deal for a moment with that, that phrase. There come a falling away first. 
This actually tells us who Paul is concerned about in the passage. Primarily, he's talking to believers that might fall away from the faith. To fall away, the Greek word behind that is apostasia, which is where we get the English word apostasy. Apostasy is when you believe the truth, you're standing for the truth, but then you fall away from the truth. Now, you can only do that if you at one time believe the truth. If you've never believed it, you're an infidel. But if you believe it and fall away, you're an apostate. And Paul says before the day of Christ comes, there is going to be a falling away. There are going to be people that believe the faith, the truth, and move away from it. On your paper, on your outline, I've given you a verse there, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some, not all, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So Paul says, guys, first thing I'm concerned about, I don't want you to fall away from the faith. Some will, and I don't want you to be one of them. Now, that's one target audience. That's the primary audience. There's a secondary audience. Just skip down to verse 9 quickly. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there's a second group here. Paul knows that the Thessalonians reading this letter are saved people. But he also, Paul knows that there are many unsaved people that will be deceived by the same thing that could cause a believer to fall away from the faith. And that is the Antichrist. Paul's concerned that when the Antichrist shows up and gives all these wonderful lies, they will be so impressive that both believer and unbeliever can be led astray by it. So he's going to inform the Thessalonians what to look for, and he's doing it briefly. He's just reminding them of something he's already taught. Say, guys, don't get too stirred up about all these false things you're hearing about prophecy. Here's what has to happen. Before we get Jesus Christ, we have to deal with Antichrist. So come back to verse 3. He says here in the middle, there shall come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So before we get to the day of Christ, we have to deal with the day of Antichrist. In the Bible, he has different names. Here we have two of them. He's called the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition. So just for a few moments, we're going to take a look at this man of sin. I want to introduce him to you in, in a very summarized, short way. If you want to know more about this, in our discipleship class, we actually cover this. We spend about, I don't know, when I teach it, it's about 30, 45 minutes just talking about the man of sin. I've done other lessons on prophecy where we do focus more on it, but I want to say a few things about this man. First thing, if you just hold your place here, flip over to John 13 real quick, please. John 13, the word perdition means destruction, destroyer. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but in the book of Revelation chapter 9, you read about Apollyon, which is another way of saying the destroyer. It's actually the same Greek word you have for perdition. John 13, did you know that there's one man in the Bible that we know of that earned the title son of perdition? We don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know. People used to say that it was Barack Obama. He's not the Antichrist. You know, for a while they said it was Nelson Mandela. You know that, right? A lot of people said that because it was 46664. Six, six, and everybody, ooh, three sixes. 
Nothing else about his life matched the prophecies about the Antichrist, but somebody saw three sixes and went, Antichrist. You know, people sometimes, they go to the coffee shop and they get the, the bill and they have to pay six rand, 66 cents. You know, some people won't pay that bill. They get scared. Oh, that's the Antichrist. That's not the Antichrist. That's your coffee habit. That's all that is. Calm down. You see, people get shaken and troubled over this. Because they don't know what the Bible has to say about the man of sin, the son of perdition. How are these things going to work? So they end up getting scared when they shouldn't be scared at all. John 13, there's one other man called son of perdition in the Bible. It's Judas. John 17, verse 12. I'm giving you a lot of information today, so write it down if you want. John 17, 12, Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. So if you want to learn something about the Antichrist, there is a connection between that future person and Judas. Now, John 13, this is the Last Supper. You're down here in verse 25, 6, 7, 8, right in there. And John, the apostle, who's a type of the church, he's leaning on Jesus' uh, chest there at the Last Supper. And Jesus says, one of you shall betray me. And Peter says, hey, hey, John, John, hey, psst, psst, ask him who it is. Because everybody's saying, is it I, is it I, is it I? And Peter says, ask him, ask him. John says, okay, okay, Peter, I'll, come now, I'll ask. Hey, Jesus, because he's right there next to Jesus. He's close to the heart of Jesus. He's close to the mouth of Jesus. He's listening carefully to everything Jesus says. And he says, Jesus, uh, who is it? Jesus does not reveal the identity of the betrayer to everybody. Only to the ones closest to him. And he says, Okay, John, I got this sop here, little piece of bread, S-O-P, a sop. I'm going to dip the sop, and whoever I give it to, that's the betrayer. John says, okay. So he dips the sop, S-O-P, son of perdition. He says, here's the sop, and he hands it to Judas, and John says, uh-huh. Now I know who it is. But when he did it, Jesus says, what they gave him the sop and said, what thou doest, do quickly. Why? He only has a short time. There's only a few hours before Jesus is going to be taken to the cross, right? So what, what you do, do quickly. Did you know in Revelation 12, it says when the devil comes down to the earth in the middle of the tribulation time, in those seven years, it says he knows he has but a short time. Interesting. Verse 29, when Jesus said this to him, it says, For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So when they saw Jesus give the sop and say, What thou doest, do quickly, Judas gets up and runs out. Judas had just been filled with the devil. Satan came into him. He runs out to deny the Lord, to betray him. Jesus said, You're going to go betray me quickly. The other disciples thought, Oh, that's our church treasurer. He's he holding the bag. Jesus told him to go do this, to buy something for the feast or to help the poor. He is a religious humanitarian. The other disciples thought that this is a good guy. They still thought it. Now, John knew better, but only John. What does that teach us? I think it's a type that there will be people the ones that are close to the Lord, listening to what he has to say, asking the right questions, they will be able to identify, hey, this guy looks like a religious, upright humanitarian. It looks like he's trying to help, but we know what's really going on. There's something below the surface. There's something evil. Come to the book of, well, come back to 2 Thessalonians just quickly. Let me show you a further description of this man. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, Paul goes on to talk about what this man of sin will one day do. There is a lot of conversation as to whether or not the church, you and I, saved people, will we see this happen with our eyes while we're on the earth? And forgive me, this is not the time and place for this conversation. I'm just going to mention it. There are three positions that are usually held. I hold the position of what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. So I believe we are going to be taken up to heaven, and then there will be seven years of trouble on the earth, and then Jesus comes back. Some people believe that the Antichrist will rise, take over the world, and for three and a half years rule the world. Then verse 4 is going to happen. He is going to go into the temple, say that he's God, and we will see that, and then we'll be taken out. And then three and a half more years later, we come back down at the Battle of Armageddon. This is called a mid-tribulation rapture. Now, at the most, I understand the position for, for that, and at the very latest, that's as late as we can be here. The other position we call post-tribulation. They say for seven years there are troubles on the earth, And then after the troubles are all over, Jesus calls us up. And then immediately we go up to heaven and it's kind of like a U-turn. We come right back down for the battle of Armageddon. I cannot get on board with the post-tribulation idea. Some people say that we go up to heaven and come right back down. Why did he take us up just to come back down? That doesn't make sense. There's nothing in the Bible that would support that. The Seventh-day Adventists, they believe that we go up into heaven at the end and stay in heaven and never come back down. That won't work at all. Revelation chapter 20 says we are on the earth for those thousand years that Jesus is reigning. So I, I, the post-tribulation rapture I can't get on board with. The mid, maybe. Myself personally, I stay with the pre-tribulation position. But that, that's another story. Now, at the very least though, verse 4, it says this, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul says before the day of Christ can happen, first there's going to be a falling away. What are people going to fall away from? The truth, the love of the truth, but fall away to what? You fall away from one thing, but for another thing. I think that what they're falling away for is the Antichrist. They are going to think that this man of sin is a good man. And the way it's working now, even amongst professing Christians, if you find a religiously minded humanitarian, people say, that's a good guy. We'll follow him. It doesn't matter if he matches biblically. It doesn't matter if he is in line with that, just as long as he's a good guy. And I think even a lot of professing Christians will be confused and fall away from biblical faith to follow this man. Now, after... I think that the man of sin can be revealed before he goes into the temple and and fulfills verse 4. I think that can happen. If you know your Bible, you know enough to look for, to say, okay, if if he says this, does this, creates this policy, brings these people together, that guy must be the Antichrist. We haven't seen that yet. Just because he has 666 on his name number plate, that's not enough, right? Just because they make a coronavirus and want to put 5G technology in you with nano, that's, that's not the Antichrist. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying take the vaccine. I'm just saying that's not the Antichrist. People say, that's the mark of the beast. No, no, it's a mark. It, it's not the mark of the beast. Those are two separate things. So take your Bible, come to Daniel chapter 
11. And I'm going to take just a couple minutes here and introduce you to some of the earmarks of the man of sin, which on your outline, by the way, point one is the man of sin. Man of sin. So Paul tells us that one day that man of sin is going to walk into the temple and say that he's God. But there are many things that are going to happen before that transpires. That event of going into the temple claiming to be God, if you look at the seven years of tribulation, that happens right in the middle. Now we know this. We know this from the book of Revelation. We know it from the book of Daniel. So right in the middle that happens. What about the time leading up to that? Do we have to wait for him to say, I'm God, to go, oh, that's the Antichrist? I don't think so. I think we can recognize it even before he does that. Daniel 11 and verse 35. One of the most fascinating chapters in all the Bible is Daniel 11. Truly an amazing chapter. What Daniel has been shown here for the past 34 verses is history from 330 B.C., up until 165 B.C. So you have about 170 years there. Daniel was shown this in 536 B.C., 200 years before it starts. And when you read those verses, it's like reading a newspaper. And Daniel got every single detail right. So much so that even the most hardened, skeptic atheist say there's no way this was a prophecy. Nobody can get that many details right. And, and they actually make up a backstory to say there was no man named Daniel. They have to get rid of this in order to not believe because it's too impressive. Verse 35, it says, And some of them of understanding shall what? Shall what? Fall. It, doesn't that match 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3? There'll be a falling away first. Well, there we go. We're in the right context. Some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end. So in Daniel 11, you have 330 up to 165 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it jumps. It says, even to the time of the end, you go from 165 B.C., zoop, 221, or 2021 A.D., possibly, right? We're all the way to the, to the very end now. And he says in verse 35 at the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. And the king, who's this? This is the Antichrist. The Antichrist, you can first, first thing you want to note about him, he's not just a religious leader. Protestants for years have been saying it's the Pope. I understand why they say that. And the Pope does fit several of the aspects. But I, I think the Pope plays a different role. This guy, he is a politician. The Antichrist starts off as a, a geopolitician. Now, he says here, the king shall do according to his will. He's not going to do God's will. He's not going to do the people's will. He'll do what he wants to do. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. So this politician steps into religion. Do you see the connection? Everybody's harping about separate church and state. This guy puts them together. He actually uses religion to unite the world under his policies. To say, guys, I'm above every God, every religion, everybody has to listen to me now. And if you do not obey my laws, you're not only disobeying government, you're disobeying spiritual authorities. He puts it all together. He says, he shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every God, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. That's, we would say, the most high God. We know him as Jehovah. He's going to speak against that. 
I believe this is happening before he steps into the temple and says, I'm God. He is speaking against the God of gods to say, you guys got Jehovah and Muslims have Allah and Hindus, you guys have Brahman, but I, I'm better than all of those. Now, he's not yet going to claim that I am the God. He is just in competition. I'll show you later what will happen when he makes this final proclamation. It says at the end of verse 36, And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. So this guy, this Antichrist, he is going to attempt to wipe out all the Jews in the world, and he will hunt everybody he considers an enemy, which are people that don't take his mark and don't follow him, and God's going to let, let this go on for these seven years. Verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, that's interesting. You know, that kind of makes him sound Jewish. That's a phrase that you only use for Jewish people. In, biblically speaking, the God of his fathers, that's the forefathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where we get the idea. This and one other place in Ezekiel, it makes it sound as if the Antichrist will at least be part Jewish, at least half Jewish, which would make sense of how this man will unite Arabs and Jews in the Middle East and bring peace. It would be hard to imagine uh, an American or a South African or just an Arab or just a Jew doing it. I think he's going to have a bit of a mix in there. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Whew, that's a tough one. What does that mean? I don't know. Next part. <laughs> the desire of women, does that mean? Some people have used this to say that the Antichrist will be homosexual. And that he, doesn't, he has no need for women, he just wants men. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. It could be that he's anti-feminist. He says, I don't care what you women want. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I've heard that approach. Uh, I don't think that kind of guy would make it in politics. <laughs> I don't think he'd be voted for. The desire of women, what does this mean? It, it could simply mean that he has no use for women. Himself, not that he's homosexual, he just says, I'm too busy being a politician. But I'll be honest, we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. And I'm not afraid to say such things on prophecy. Paul said, when we talk about prophecy, we're looking through the glass darkly. There are certain things we just don't know. We know what it says, but we won't understand it completely until it's fulfilled. So we'll see one day. Nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. So he puts them all below himself. For he shall magnify himself above all. Verse 38, but in his estate, his position, he shall honor the God of forces. So what does he credit? Who, to whom does he give credit for creating everything? Well, he doesn't believe in a personal God, in a God that, that can actually interact with humanity and talk to us. He's not a theist. He's a deist at the very minimum. He believes that there is a power, an energy, if you will. Hinduism calls this the prana. This is the life force. This is the energy that makes us work, that, makes the, that keeps the universe working the way it does. This is what George Lucas called, may the force be with you. <laughs> the God of forces. Now, you giggle at that, and I do too, but listen, that's exactly what this is talking about. When George Lucas said, may the force be with you, he's replacing the idea of God with the idea of, an, of a mindless non-impersonal energy source that runs the universe. Have you heard people say this? The universe did this for me. 
I'm glad the universe worked this out. What they're trying to say is fate did it. They're acknowledging that there is something out there. There's a power out there, but it is not personal. It doesn't care about me. It just brings things about as it sees fit. So that energy source, right, can be manipulated. If this God doesn't have a personality, you can put your own personality over it. That's what this guy's going to do. Neither shall he regard the, uh, verse 38, sorry. He'll honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So he gathers the wealth of the world and dedicates these wealth, this wealth and these resources to promoting his version of God. Where does he focus all the wealth and resources? Verse 39, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God. He goes to the most fortified, strongest militaries in the world, the most strongholds. In today's world, I would assume that would maybe be Russia, China, and America, if I had to guess, if I had to guess. And he says, guys, I'm going to give you all the resources. And he says, verse 39, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. What the Antichrist will do is unite the world under his rule and redistribute all of its wealth. You guys lay down your arms, lay down your weapons, put them under my control. I will give them to the people that have the strongest military so they can defend us. Anybody that doesn't agree with us, we will attack them. And I will let these military forces rule the world. Now, this in, I'm giving you one passage in Daniel. Many other verses would show this. If you want to look at your paper, the bottom of the outline, I've given you a summation. The Antichrist starts off as a politician who uses religion, among other things, to unite and control the world. He brings about peace by disarming the world and redistributing its wealth to the military powers of the time. As time goes on, he is attacked, assassinated, rises again, and then claims to be the embodiment of God on earth. That's when 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 kicks in. So what we read going further, verse 40, at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. The Antichrist by this point has set up a peace treaty in the Middle East. Arabs and Jews are getting along. They share the land. But then, after three and a half years have gone by, war breaks out. Maybe not even that long. War breaks out. And in that region, you can read which countries it is in verse 41. Edom, Moab, Ammon. That's what we today would call Jordan or Transjordan. They come against him and they fight. And when they do, in the process of doing this, verse 45, he, the Antichrist, shall plant uh, the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Notice, plant the tabernacles of his palace. He's got his own little temple. And he puts them right there in the middle of this land he now owns, the glorious holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. He shall come to his end, and none shall help him. He's assassinated. And they leave him for dead. You know what happens? Three days later, I'm assuming three days, just to match Christ. Three days later, he rises again. And when he does, Revelation 13 tells us that he doesn't rise again under his own power. God doesn't do it. It's the devil. The devil enters into this guy, raises him from the dead, and that's when he comes back, goes into the temple of God, and says, here I am. 
I told you guys I was above every God, and now that you killed me and tried to stop me, I've come back even better than before. Now fall down and worship. And it's at that point that the whole world, by and large, falls down and begins to worship this man. Who can do what this guy can do? He just came back from the dead. That's when a lot of people say, well, this whole story of Jesus must have been wrong. This we can actually see. It, it's broadcast on every major network. We have saw him die, and now we've seen him alive again. This is not just 12 apostles that saw it. This is millions of people watching this happen. You can see the deception, the, the power behind this deception. Now, if you know to look for it, when it starts to happen, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. This looks good on the surface, but I know what's going on here. Chapter 12, verse 1, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble. There's your tribulation. Such as was never since there was a nation, even to that same time. How many of you remember Jesus saying that? Jesus quoted this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, this, There will be time of a great tribulation like never before in history. He says at the end of verse 1, such as was never before there was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So he says there's going to be this horrible trouble, but then at the end, the people that Michael is deployed to protect, the Israelites, they're going to be saved. And that's at the, at the end. All right, so I want to show you a couple other things. Come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've tried in just, what, 10, 15 minutes to give you some insight as to what to look for for the Antichrist. You turn on the news and you start hearing about, you know, a vaccine with a 5G chip. That's fine. I mean, that's, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's not the end time stuff. Biblically, we know what to look for. 2 Thessalonians 2, there's more to it, though, than just politics and world governments. There's a spiritual aspect. Look at verse 9. He goes on to describe the man of sin, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This man can do miracles. He can do miracles. He doesn't do them in Jesus' name. He does them in his own name. Jesus said in John 5, I have come in my Father's name and you didn't receive me. Somebody else will come in his own name and him you will receive. He's talking about the Antichrist. He says... This guy's going to come with lying wonders. Why? Verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. So the Antichrist is going to tell the lost people, you guys can do whatever you want, it's okay. He, he's going to use their desire for wickedness. You can see it again in verse 12. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. They don't want somebody showing up saying, repent. The kingdom's at hand. They don't want that. That's why they didn't like Jesus. He showed up and preached repentance. The Antichrist shows up and says, boo-hoo on all this repentance stuff. You're fine just the way you are. You don't need to change at all. We accept you just the way. You choose however you want to be. You can choose whatever orientation you want. We accept you. And if anybody doesn't accept your version of yourself, they are discriminating and we will punish them. Which, by the way, is exactly the, the law that South Africa is trying to pass right now, the Paputa Bill. Trying to say anybody that discriminates on those kind of bases, then you can face prosecution. The world's getting ready for this. It's already happening in America. 
If a gay couple comes and says, bake us a cake for our wedding, and you say, no, I'm sorry, I, I won't support. I'll bake you a cake. You can use the cake for whatever you want, but I will not be involved in a gay wedding. It goes against my religious convictions. That man went to prison. He's in prison because he wouldn't bake a cake based on religious convictions. This guy's going to say, guys, do whatever you want. Whatever unrighteousness, whatever wickedness you like, help yourself. Nobody's going to punish you with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So somebody finally shows up and justifies all their wickedness and can do miracles to boot. Now, do you see how modern-day Christianity is kind of getting ready for this? It, has, it doesn't matter what the message is. It doesn't matter what the pastor stands up to preach. As long as he makes you feel good about yourself, it has nothing to do with I need to repent and come in line with Christ. You just find your true self. Find your truth and follow that. That's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to discover ourselves. No, He doesn't. He wants us to discover Him. Not ourselves. We're not worth discovering. He is. He is. This guy comes with power, signs, line wonders. Look at verse 11. And for this cause, because they rejected the truth, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. God says, all right, listen, I tried to give you the love of the truth. I patiently gave you evidence after evidence. I reached out to you. I, I showed you how much I loved you. And yet you constantly rejected it. So if you don't want light, I'll give you darkness. If you don't want truth, you get a lie. This is not God being mean. This is God being just. You don't want Christ? I'll give you Antichrist. This is what the people deserve. Hold your place here. Come to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now you got that in your left hand. I'm also going to direct your attention to the outline that I've given you. I've given you three verses there at the bottom. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 3. Because it might catch you by surprise, why would God send strong delusion? Why would He do that? Well, as I said, it's not as if that was His first choice. He sent them truth. But if they don't want truth, then they get the other thing. Now, Deuteronomy 13, look at what God what the Bible says here, verse 1, uh, you read along with me on your outlines. Deuteronomy 13, 1, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, so he does a miracle, a real one, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Do you see what God's doing? He's getting his people ready for this. Saying, guys, don't be a sucker for the miracle. The miracle is not the big part of this. The, big, the important part is the message, not the miracle. A miracle can confirm a message. That's true. But the big thing is the message. The message was Jehovah is the true God. Obey him. But then you might get some other prophet showing up going, no, no, let's go after Baal. Let's go after this or that. Watch. Here, I can do a miracle. Poof. If you're just going to follow the miracle, then you're going to follow everybody that has a convincing you know, act or deed that he can do. You have to compare the message. 
Does the message match what the true God has already revealed? Praise the Lord. This is why God has taken so much care to preserve his word since it was given. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why you hear us harping on and on about we still have a Bible. That's why it's a big deal. If we didn't have it, we couldn't check the message. And then some guy shows up and he raises from the dead and says, look, I can do these miracles. And we go, you're smarter than me. You're, you're more powerful than me. I'll follow you. If you don't have a Bible, you end up deceived. Now he says in verse 3, watch what God says. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you. It's a test. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Why would God allow it? Same reason God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. To give you a choice. Right? You have to have a choice in order to have true love. In order to have a real relationship, there has to be some other choice. And he says, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop these false people from coming around. I'm going to give you enough evidence in your hands so that you'll know when they're lying. And then I expect you to do your necessary homework so that you don't get led astray. Matthew chapter 24, look at what Jesus said on this. Do you see it there in verse number 21? For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Do you remember that from Daniel? That's Daniel. You look what he said in verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him what? Under, pay attention to what you're reading. Jesus says, here's the signs of my coming. This is what's going to happen. Go back and read Daniel. That's why we did it today. And then you'll know what to look for. There's going to be horrible trouble. Verse, 20, uh, verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs, plural, and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Two groups can be deceived, elect and non-elect. Now, lest that terminology scare you, saved or unsaved, believer or unbeliever, the, the Antichrist and all of the false Christ leading up to him have very convincing, powerful arguments, but they don't match the Scripture. That's why the Apostle Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy and you do well that you take heed until that day star arise in your hearts, until the rapture happens. Take heed to what it says. All right, come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 5. We're going to wrap it up on a few practical thoughts here. Verse 5, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. So Paul says, I've already explained that. I gave you a discipleship lesson on it. You should know, but maybe you've forgotten. You've been watching YouTube and listening to all these other guys and what they have to say on it. Maybe you forgot what I taught you. Verse 6, and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Something is holding back this man of sin from being revealed. We can't see who it is. What's, what's holding him back? The falling away. That's the what from verse 3. That event, verse 7, the mystery, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let, the word let there, that's another word for withholdeth or hindering, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Somebody has to be taken out of the way before 
The ant, the, let's say, before Satan can be manifest in the flesh. Look at verse 8. And then shall that, capital W, wicked be revealed. When Jesus came, you know what he was? God manifest in the flesh. And that, in the Bible, is called the mystery of godliness. Mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. So, verse 7, you know what we're dealing with here? Mystery of iniquity. It's the other side of the coin. This is not God manifest in the flesh. This is Satan manifest in the flesh. Are you with me? So he says this, this is what's eventually going to happen. And before that can happen, somebody has to be taken out of the way. So this man of sin, he rises up. The book of Daniel chapter 11. He unites the world. He disarms. He redistributes the wealth, so on and so forth. He says, listen, I'm above all religion. I'm all this stuff about God this and God that. Listen to me. Don't listen to them. Somebody assassinates him. You know what has happened? He's taken out of the way. And then three days later, he rises again. But now, that's not just a man anymore. He's been born again, but not of God. He's been born again, but now of Satan. So he's no longer just the man of sin. He's now the son of perdition. And when he writes, see, that's why in Revelation 17, it says, this man, this Antichrist, he is of the seven, the seven heads, of, of the dragon. He's, of the, he's the eighth, but he's of the seven. How can you be the eighth if you're of the seven? Because it's the same body, but there's something else inside of it now. It's not the same man, technically. There's something else going on inside. So there's a what that withholds. That's the follow, falling away. There is a who that is withholding. And that's that man of sin that has to be assassinated. When he rises again, the wicked gets revealed. Now, verse 7, you might say, Brother Mike, you know, all of this stuff, uh, this is a lot of information. It's kind of flying over my head, and this is all end-time stuff. It's not happening now. So how, what, what should I do with this information today? I'm glad you asked. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. So that's point two on your paper, mystery of iniquity. It's already working. It was working in Paul's day. Do you see that? It was working in Paul's day, and it's been working all the way until today. It's still at work. What's the, what's the work that's being done? The devil wants you to worship anything but the true God. He doesn't want you to know the true Jesus Christ. He wants you to be ready to receive a false Christ. So what does he do? He confuses you about the real Christ. That's the mystery of iniquity working, preparing the world to receive the wrong Christ. Hold your place here. 1 John chapter 2. And don't worry, we're almost done. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 18. John writes, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many antichrists. Do you see the singular and the plural? There is antichrist. That's the, the, the last man that stands up, unites the world. Then there are many antichrists, little ones. Whereby we know that it is the last time they went out from us. These antichrists. They start off sitting in a Christian church. They start off listening to the same preaching that you're listening to. They got a Bible in their hands. But then they spin off. They do their own thing. They get their own version of Jesus. 
See, they start privately interpreting this or that. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't really saved. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. If we were all on the same page, they'd still walk with us. We'd be in agreement. But how can two walk together except they be agreed? They have a different Jesus that they're preaching. We know this. Paul said other people, they're preaching another Jesus. He says at the end of verse uh, 19, But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Not all of them. Some of them were saved. Some of them weren't. Some got deceived. Some didn't. He said all of those people that went out, some of them were saved, some of them weren't, but whatever the, fa- uh, the case was, they left because they no longer believed in the same Jesus that we believed in. Now, for the sake of time, let's skip to chapter 4. Let me show you more about these antichrist. How does this apply to me? What should I do? Beloved, chapter 4, verse 1, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. That's your job, not just mine. That's yours. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world how do you try the spirits? I've seen people say, you ask the spirit, you talk to the spirit. Hello, Mr. Spirit, are you telling the truth? Listen, if it's a lying spirit, what do you think he's going to say? Yeah, you got me, I'm telling a lie, I'm, I'm sorry. He's not going to say that, he's a lying spirit, he's going to say that it's the truth. How do you test him, how do you try him? The, this lying spirit is inside of a lying prophet. Do you see it? Verse 1. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. So you call this preacher, in, you know, sit him down at Mug and Bean, have a coffee with him and say, listen, Mr. Preacher, you've been talking about this and that, Jesus. Uh, tell me what you believe. Let me, let me compare it with the verified record I have of Jesus. Does it match? And if it doesn't match, the guy's lying. That's how you test him. Verse 2, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. One of the popular teachings in John's day was to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. It was called docetism. They believed that Jesus came, that he was God, but that he never had real flesh. He never got hungry. He never got tired. He never died. He never died. It just looked like he died. He faked the whole thing. Which, by the way, that ended up in the Quran. It's exactly what the Quran says. They picked up on that saying. So how do I know that the Jesus of, the, of, of Islam is not the right Jesus? I just match it with the record I have of the biblical Jesus. I test him. Look down at verse number 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He says, guys, you've got to discern this. Come down to chapter 5 and verse 13. What do we use to, to make these determinations? 1 John 5, 13. These things have I what? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He said, guys, I've written it down so that you can know who the right Jesus is and what he can do for you. I've written it down. How do we test it? How do we know? We go back to the biblical record. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. I don't want you to get sucked into it. Come back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Brother, sister, I want the biblical Jesus. I want the Jesus of the Bible. I don't want the Jesus of modern invention, the Jesus of our imagination that gives you everything you want. 
I don't want a Jesus made after the image of man. I, I want the Jesus, the same one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want that Jesus. I want the Jesus that said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He'll go in and out and find pastor. I want that Jesus. The Jesus that said, you must be born again. I want that Jesus. The Jesus that said, if you believe not that I am he, you'll die in your sins. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the one you want to get hooked to. I, I've often illustrated it like this. If you ever heard this, this saying, uh, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. You ever heard that when somebody says something's real difficult, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Well, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying I've ever tried it. If a needle was in a haystack, you know what I would do? Go to the store and buy another pack of needles. <laughs> that's what I would do, right? But if you really needed to find a needle in a haystack, you know how to do it, right? Get a magnet. It would take you a little bit of time, but you will get the needle, right? Come on, right? Are you guys with me or are you already in nap mode? <laughs> stay, stay with me here. Reboot the computer. You're still with now, you know what would really be difficult? If you put a needle in a pile of needles and said, now find this one particular needle, that would be tough. Because now my magnet's not going to help. Every needle's going to stick to the magnet. You, there, there would be something that would distinguish that one special needle from the rest of the needles. That would take a lot of time and careful inspection to look at every needle and say, is this the right one? You know what the devil did? He didn't put the needle in a haystack. He put the needle, Jesus, in a pile of false Jesuses that looked so close that it could be the one. But if you look close enough, if you study close enough, you go, oh, no, no, wait, that's not the right Jesus. This is the one I'm looking for. Now, as in, in order to close this lesson, in 2 Thessalonians 2, I want you to notice two phrases, and this is point three on your outline. You can just write down two words, might be, might be. Be. Look at verse 10 at the end of it, that they might be saved. Do you see that? They might be saved. Look at the, look in verse 12, that they all might be damned. So I'm going to leave you on that thought. Guys, you have two choices. You might be saved or you might be damned. That decision is yours. That decision is yours. We know this from the passage that God, His first option, the will of God is not for anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants you to know His Son truly and personally. He doesn't want you to be led astray by this, by any faker, whether it is the Antichrist or all of these false prophets leading up to Him. Sure, we need to know what things to look for as the signs of the times unfold. But at the end of the day, what God is really desirous of is for you to know Him personally. He wants you to avoid being damned, and the only way for that to happen is that they all might be saved. How do we get that? Through the love of the truth. And that is you acknowledging that no matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. But the Jesus of the Bible, the one that said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many, He came to pay for your sins. And if you come to him sincerely, genuinely, and say, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. Please save me. I want to receive what you did for me. Friend, that, that is what saves a person's soul. That starts the relationship with him. And from that point on, 
We can just grow in our knowledge of him. The more you get to know him, the least chance there is, or less chance there is of being deceived by those other Christ. Let's all stand, if you would, please. All right, let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a few moments. Garrett, if you don't mind playing something softly, we'll not take long today with our invitation. Today, as I said, this is more of a lesson than a sermon. Tried to give you a lot of information today. The concern was that believers might get confused about end times scenarios. They might think that the day of the Lord is something that it's not. They might think the Antichrist is someone he's not. They might be led astray by lying wonders. I want you to search your heart this morning. Just ask yourself, the Jesus that I pray to, that I talk to, that I walk with, is that the Jesus of the Bible? Or is that the Jesus of your imagination? Do you know Him personally? Before I pray, let me just offer that if you have some doubts as to whether or not you have been born again, I would be honored to chat with you about it. You're welcome to find me after the service. Say, Brother Mike, if I died today, I'm not sure if I go to heaven. Can you please help me with that? I'd be honored to do so. Father, thank you for your assistance this morning. So many things we've covered and said. Lord, we do. We look through the glass darkly. When it comes to prophecy, we only know what you told us. But Lord, we believe that you, the everlasting one, the one that sees the end from the beginning and vice versa, Lord, every single thing you've told us about the future has come to pass. And we believe one day Jesus will come. We will be gathered unto him. My prayer, Lord, is that you'd help us to be ready for that moment. If anybody here isn't saved, God, please work on that heart. Please help us throughout this day, Lord, to keep in mind the great responsibility we have to know you personally. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.